All right, good morning, church. So good to see you. Take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Welcome to summer. You made it. I mean, like, parents, come on. Like, you know it's awesome, right? I know we're greatly relieved. I hope you're enjoying summer already. And I'm sure many of you on the stream are out by the beach somewhere and you've tuned in and listened. And I'm not jealous or anything. Uh, but we're glad you're here. Glad you're here. Uh, years ago, I took a trip to visit a friend of mine in a, a Muslim country in Southeast Asia. And right, right before I left, uh, I learned that uh, ISIS had uh, sort of gravitated to this country and assembled there uh, at, while I would be there. And, um, and it's a very difficult place. My, my friend actually does a lot of work there with orphans and things and um, has had death threats on his life and, and all this sort of thing. So if you, if you know of uh, people who are uh, representing the Lord in places like that, um, the, the Muslims will shoot something over your bow just as a warning before they kill you, So which is a good thing, uh, and we appreciate that. But I was, uh, I was going to visit this guy. Um, and his family, as they ministered there and be a part of their ministry, trained some pastors who were really putting their life on the line every day for the gospel. And so it's a 19-hour flight. I'm exhausted when we get there. Uh, we go to this, the house of my friend, and, and we walk from their house to the hotel. And I'm walking down the road, and it's all the things that you can imagine. I mean, the women with the black all the way dressed to the ground, all that stuff everywhere, and all of that happening, and, and you're just thinking, oh my goodness, this is like not just TV, this is real, and, um, but I get to the hotel, and the building code stuff is, is not the same, I know you would think it would be, um, but it's not, no elevators in a building, and they climb stairs all the way to the top of buildings, all the way down, all the way, and that's, so we're on the fourth floor, and we have all these bags from traveling internationally, and, but thank God they had a guy there who was going to carry all those bags for us up to our fourth floor, and he did that. And we got there, and we're exhausted, and we're in, a, in the room, and we're trying to, to figure out what everything is and, um, and, and get ready for bed. Well, we finally, finally get to sleep. I had a roommate friend of mine who went with me, and we're in bed, and we're sleeping, and it's a little after midnight, and our phone rings in the hotel room. And I'm like, how did Christy find me? Like... Like, how is, was, but, but honestly, my, I'm thinking, why in the world is the phone ringing after midnight in the hotel room? So my friend ends up answering the phone, and he's just like oblivious, doesn't care, and he's listening to the conversation, and he's like, yeah, okay, you know. And then he, he ends up saying to them, can we just do that in the morning? And, and then he goes, okay, bye. And he hangs up, and I'm like, what in the world is happening? What could they, and he said, oh, I don't know, they just wanted to move us to another room. So see, you, you felt what I felt. And I was like, am I crazy? That's totally weird. And all of my alarm bells are going off because it's a dangerous situation for one thing. But this is so odd. that and, and so I'm taking an hour of looking at the ceiling going, what was that all about? Like, what is going on? And I'm nervous. And I finally get back to sleep. And at 4 a.m., right outside my window, if you've been to uh, mostly Muslim country, you understand this. You hear a little speaker come on and it click like that. And a guy comes on, and it sounds like he just woke up. And he goes, and you're going, what? And, and that speaker for the whole community was right outside my window. 
And so they go for about 10 minutes. I can't remember exactly how long it was, but it was a long time of a guy with a not a good voice, okay? And I'm laying there in my bed at 4, 10 in the morning, and I remember thinking to myself, I, Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. I feel like I am on Mars. The culture I grew up in is almost a direct 180 from everything I encountered in this situation. I, the next day we get up, we go eat. Well, guess what? You can't eat with utensils. From a child, my parents have said, don't eat with your hands. It's disgusting. Do you know what you do there? You must eat with your hands. You work with your hands, you eat with your hands. And I'm like, this feels wrong. But not only do you eat with your hands, you only eat with your right hand. And you keep your left hand under the table. If you bring that sucker out and set it on the table, they all might walk away from you and tell you to leave. So you got to be real careful. And it's like, and then what they eat is rice with some like chicken or goat or beef or whatever they put on it with some sauce. So if you've been to an Indian restaurant, the chicken masala, there you go. That's about like that. And they give you bread. And basically, how do you eat that? with one hand it's a shovel i mean it's like go try it just go to an indian restaurant for lunch today and try to eat with your hand and everybody's gonna laugh at you it is a mess it's hard to do so you end up taking the bread as an american and making a sandwich like and just putting it in like a burrito that's all i knew how to do but all along the way what i'm encountering is this everything i have had baked into my fabric culturally. Now, in almost every single thing I do, I'm running counter and I have to rethink how I do everything I do in a whole new place, in a culture that is vastly different than the one in which I grew up in. Well, one of the major benefits of this beautiful piece of literature from God's Word is to give us as believers in our day, not a perfect picture, but a beautiful portrayal of what it looks like to experience God in our lives when we are living in a context where the culture around us is very different than we are in Christ. Esther is the story of a beautiful, young, orphan Jewish girl who, through a process of the Persian Idol contest, has made it all the way to the end. And there's a whole lot of miracles that have to happen in the process for a person to get to that level, making up through the harem, being chosen, all of that stuff, the king actually being pleased with you and not think you're boring, and all the things. And she got the job. I mean, got the job. And she's now queen, a position of authority, but not as much authority as like queen of England. We're not talking that kind of authority. We're talking like, but in a position of authority, like has a voice to the king directly. Um, and he listens to her and things like this. And you're the wife and the, and the, and the, the, uh, the, the favored wife, if you will, of this king of Persia. And she is a queen in this position of authority in a Persian empire that is in almost all, in almost entirely 
The culture runs in opposition to everything she values as a Jew. So she's in this context. And in our text today, we're going to see that when you live in a culture that is very different than you are in Christ and in God and in his word, and you're living in a context that's very different than that, you're going to experience incredible tensions in your life, pains in your life, and even hostility from others in that culture toward you because of it. And yet, at the same time, you are right smack dab in the middle of God's will for your life. We're going to see that from our text. I'm going to read from Esther chapter 2 verse 19 down to chapter 3 verse 6. And let's just let the Lord take this text and, 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 and give those mental pictures of the context and the things that are happening in that day and then we'll try to unpack it as we meditate on it. Verse 19. When the young women were assembled together for a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still had not revealed her birthplace or her ethnic background as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two eunuchs who guarded the king's entrance, uh, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther. And she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged in the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. I made it through it. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? And when they had warned him day after day, and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, Haman decided not to do away with Mordecai's, Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Hazarus' kingdom. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Lord, uh, without you, Holy Spirit, this is just words on a page. Lord, we just pray that you'd breathe life into it and show us our hearts and our minds, show us our world that we live in, show us our context, and show us your will and your ways as a result of this text. And we offer our hearts to you and we listen, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So just a rough overview. Mordecai sits at the king's gate. Um, that means that he is in a, the, the king's gate, you get invited to go see the king, you don't just bebop into the see the king. And yet, you need to be available when he calls on you. And so this would put a context where they would wait right outside his house in a gate. Well, that made itself 
lends itself to political conversations and debates and all kinds of stuff among the powers of that be. And so the, that place is a very, like Washington is Congress. Like it's, it, that's what that is. And so you had to be available. Well, he overhears some, some guys talking about assassinating the king. He reports it to Esther, who's queen, and when Esther had the opportunity, she passes it on to the king. They reported to it, they found it to be true, and they executed them for treason. And, and so Mordecai never got the credit for it. It goes away. We'll talk about that later in future weeks. Um, but then Haman, the Amal Amalekite, gets honored to a place. Uh, the, the context there is he's an Amalekite. The Amalekite, if you remember during the Exodus, the Amalekites came and attacked the Jews for really no reason. And God said he's going he's gonna to wipe out the memory of the Amalekites from the earth forever. Okay. So the Amalekites are the arch enemy of the Jew. Well, Queen Esther's a Jew and she gets to be queen. And now another person is being honored and given authority, the, basically the prime minister role. And his, his name is Haman and he's an Amalekite, an arch enemy of the Jew. Y'all see the tension building? Okay, so these two people are in authority. Haman is, they are, the king orders for Haman to be bowed down to. So everyone is to bow to Haman when he comes by. He comes by, Mordecai doesn't bow. Why doesn't Mordecai bow? Well, probably, I mean, he is a Malachite, right? It could be, have something to do with that. Uh, or it could be that he knows about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, you know, I don't bow to anyone but God. And he decides, I'm not going to bow. I'm going, I'm going to do Well, Haman gets irate at Mordecai and says, wants to kill Mordecai for not obeying the king's command. And Mordecai is basically resisting everything. And Haman is so angry, he learns that Mordecai is a Jew. Well, what is he? An Amalekite. What, did, what, is God's, what does the, the Jew God say about the Amalekite? He's going to wipe the memory off of, of them from the earth, right? Well, what does now Haman, an Amalekite, want to do to the Jews? He wants to annihilate them. Well, in the verses preceding, after this, actually, um, you, you'll see he goes to the king and he says, there's a people who don't have a law, they don't obey your law, and you need to get rid of them. And the king basically says, uh, well, he basically says, I'll even pay for the whole thing. I'll use my own money. And the king says, it's your money, go do what you want to with these people, and you're prime minister, so go do it. Not knowing it's necessarily the Jew, and not knowing that Esther is a Jew, he makes this order, Okay. And the whole city of Susa, it says, is in turmoil over this massive decision that has come out. It is a mess. That's the context. Let me back up. Esther is a book written in the period of a Jewish history where the Jews are in exile. And you have to understand that to get a lot of the, the color of the fabric of this particular piece of literature. In 586 B.C., Babylon came to Israel. Israel, for a thousand years, has been its own country own laws they establish their own culture their own values and they own every bit of it and it's all under the word of god they worship at the temple all of them it's it's a theocracy it is a um uh, uh, they they own every bit of culture formation in their country babylon comes along in 586 and takes all the people all the jews and what babylon is thinking about doing when they talk about conquering an area is they want to take the people from that area and get them to Babylon and make them Babylonians. And what they are intending to do by that is not just have a large, vast empire, but to make the whole empire Babylonian in their cultural values and laws and thinking. They want to make everyone a Babylonian cultural. So they put pressures on you and they move you to Babylon so that you get in the mix of Babylon and you become a Babylonian, right? 
So the Jews are taken to do this. And the Jews need to preserve their heritage, their history, their values, their culture, their laws, their, their covenant place with God. And they want to preserve this in their hearts. Okay, And that's the challenge. The Jews have to go to a Babylon and they have to exist there for about 50 years. 50 years is a long time. And God tells them, build homes, do good to the people that are there, um, and just be patient because this is going to be a while. Well, 50 years later, about roughly 50 years later, the Persians rise up under King Cyrus and they conquer the Babylonians. And so then the capital of the new king, the new uh, uh, empire, the Persian empire, becomes Susa, which is not too far away. Mordecai and Esther find themselves. Mordecai was taken, in Bab- taken from Jerusalem as a child, probably. Then he was taken to Babylon, and he had to live there for 50 years until the Persians came along and ruined and took all that away. And now he finds himself in Susa, and he has Esther as a daughter because he adopted her. At a young age, she lost both of her parents, and she, he adopted her as a father. So that's the context of this book. And Esther is become queen now, and she's in Susa. She's in the capital in a foreign land. Now you've got the context, all right? Now can I preach? All right. Have you ever found yourself in a context where you had to exist in a place where you felt like you were the minority when it comes to cultural dynamics. You are in a foreign land. You are not in your home. The way you think, the way you are, the, 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 the values, the way you look at God, your worldview is almost running so contrary to the culture around you. Now I can hear some of you saying, sure, when I go to downtown Austin and try to find a parking spot. How do I park in this place? How do I drive? I didn't know that was a one-way. I'm really sorry. You know, you, you, you run into these things, and very similarly, me in Southeastern, Southeastern Asia. Well, Mordecai and Esther are living countercultural lives, and they're trying to be faithful to their heritage. They're trying to be faithful to their covenant God. They're trying to be faithful to God's word to them. They're trying to be faithful in all the culture that they need to preserve as the people of God in this foreign place that is putting pressure on them to conform to them. And they experience God working through them in this context for his purposes in the world. God is doing a grand, huge work as they are operating in that context. And that's what we see from our text here today. And by the way, today, traditionally, you know how Christians for thousands of years have... uh, basically calendared the gospel advent starts in december leading up to christmas and then lent begins around february and it goes all the way up to easter and then easter we celebrate well today is actually the end of the calendar season for the christian and it's the day of pentecost it's the day that we celebrate pentecost traditionally that's what we have done in other words what that means is as we calendar the gospel we see the birth of christ being the start today is pentecost and and it's acts 1 8 it's go from now up back, back to Advent is the common times, they call it, or the time of mission. Go. Go into all the world. Go into all the cultures of the earth, preach the gospel, make disciples, do the mission. And what does that mean? That means that 
Jesus said, go into all the earth, to every language, nation, tribe, and tongue, and all cultures and people groupings all over the earth, and insert yourself into that culture and live out the gospel in the midst of that culture. That is the mission of the gospel. So here's, here's my point. We, as the church, as Christians, followers of Christ, ought to be experts at how to live counterculturally for the glory of Christ. We ought to be the experts with this. Why? Because the whole Christian life is being lived in counterculture because we're living on mission with Jesus and we live counterculturally. That is what we do. That is who we are. That is our calling. So we should be experts at this whole thing because it's at the core of our identity. And that today, Pentecost, go on mission. Can you see the tie together? So how do we live counterculturally in the context that we are in? Living for Christ, but yet also living in the midst of a, of a culture that we're supposed to be used by God to do. The Bible says that we are a royal priesthood. Every believer who trusts in Jesus, the second you are saved, you are a priest. What does a priest do? A priest introduces God to people who don't know him, and a priest introduces people who don't know him to God. That's what a priest does. Representation here. Ambassadors for God. That you represent God. And so God says, go get in the midst of these cultures, live in them, get in that culture, get in the fabric of that culture, and represent me faithfully right there. And as you do, it'll be like light and darkness. It'll be like salt and food or whatever. Does that make sense? So we're supposed to be experts at this. We should know how to do this. So how do we do it? Some principles that I want to help you from, from Esther here. And uh, uh, four, four points, four principles here. Principles of living counterculturally. First, belong to a church family. Now, I know you probably hear like, okay, where is that in, in Esther? I don't see church in there anywhere. Um, I think pastor's just got a little thing he wants to say, right? Uh, well, let, let me explain. Let me explain. When you read the New Testament, if you're just reading the Bible from the beginning to the end, when you get to the New Testament, this thing surfaces up that was not in the Old Testament at all. And it's a thing called a synagogue. You ever heard of a synagogue? Okay. Um, scholars say that the whole concept of a synagogue came out of the necessity of Jews being in exile trying to preserve their culture in a foreign land. They don't want to lose their heritage. They don't want to lose their culture. They don't want to lose their values. They don't want to lose their, their way of life. And who they are and their identity. They don't want to lose all of that. So how do they preserve that in Babylon? How do they preserve that in Susa? How do they preserve that in a Roman Empire? In Lystra, Iconium? How do they preserve that in Rome? How do they preserve their culture when they're not in Israel and they don't own all the cultural forming decisions? And they don't have a temple to worship at and worship their God? How do they preserve their faith in the midst of all these cities across vast empires during an exile and an intertestamental period when there's a diaspora. They're all, over, they're all over the place. Here's how. A synagogue. The synagogue was formed for Jews living in Babylon with the pressure of becoming Babylonian to not become Babylonian. How did they do it? They rallied together and they preserved their culture and they created a subculture 
a counterculture to the culture in which they were in, to keep them strong, to keep them rooted in the things of God and who they are and in their identity. As they were to live in this culture, they had to preserve it. And how did they? Synagogue. So where am I going with this? Jesus told the apostles, spread the gospel, make disciples. How do you make disciples? Well, here's what the apostles did. The apostle Paul would go to all of his journeys. He would go into a city, and what would he look for? A synagogue. He would go to the Jews first, and he would have the, they would be in a synagogue, and what would he do? The Messiah has come. Dead, buried, risen. He's the king. Trust him now. Believe him. Our Messiah is here. Uh, and many times he would expect them to go, great, good to hear. We're Christians now, right? No. Some would try to kill him, and then others would believe. And what would he do? Most of the time he would take the ones who believed, the Jews who believed, the Messianic Jews who would believe in Christ, and he would go and set up another synagogue for them called a church. The synagogue was the system used by the apostles to set up what is called, Jesus said, I will build my church. In the mission of the gospel, for believers to go all over the world and insert themselves into cultures and to preserve a gospel identity in the midst of a culture that would definitely be against it, how do you preserve that? How do you keep rooted in who you are and your identity in God's word and in the scriptures and in the gospel to Christ himself and not become a product of your culture? The church. The church. It's the whole purpose of the church. A subculture, a counterculture in which you plant yourself and root yourself into to strengthen you in these things and to keep you centered in the right things as you are in the midst of a culture that is vastly different than the gospel. Make sense? So what I say to you as a pastor is root yourself in the church. Parents, think about a Jew raising his kids after the exile in Babylon. Would a Jew go, go enjoy Babylon? A Jew would not do that. Why? Because he'll become a Babylonian. Because what does a kid do? A kid absorbs whatever their culture they're in. They absorb whatever's around them. They're sponges. That's what they were made to do. They're human beings. They just absorb everything that's around them. And if you just say, go absorb, guess what they become? A Babylonian. You have to counter that by teaching them the truth and telling them who they are and showing them their identity in God and in his word and in his laws and in his ways and in his will. So that they will be strong as they go out and face those resistors. Right. Parents. Parents. Church. Root your kids in the church. That is the method to root your kids in the word. The church. Now, why am I hammering this? I think in America we don't know how to do this very well because the culture has so been shaped by Christian culture for however many years. America was based in Christianity shaped a lot of the fabric of our culture. And so the, the, the need to hunker in and protect and preserve gospel um, has gotten lighter in Christians in America. And we don't view the church that way um, and, and, and to that degree. But our culture is progressively 
becoming more of a Babylon, more of a Susa. It is, progressively. And it's, and it's getting more and more that way. Where we don't live in a, a Christian culture, that's been evaporating for a number of years. We're entering into a pagan culture. Much of what the context of the early church faced in the first century. When they went into cities and it was very sexualized and a lot of values and all that sort of thing, it was, it was a, a, a pagan culture. America has been on that track and is continuing on that track. And I say this to say that if you don't understand the, the purpose of the church and rooting you in the gospel and keeping you in the gospel, um, your kids will become like the culture that we're in. And your whole purpose as a parent is to counter it with your kids and in their hearts. That's that, by modeling it, by walking in it, by keeping in the community and strengthening in the things they need to be strengthened in. I hope that makes sense. And I went way too long on that point because you're here. Good job. All right. Yeah. And you're, you, you, uh, you don't need this, obviously. Secondly, grow in wisdom in managing the tensions. When you live counterculturally in the culture in which you live, you've got to manage the tensions. Mordecai saves the king's life on one hand, disobeys the king's order on another hand. Absolute law to the king? No, absolute law to the king. But it applies, and it takes wisdom to know how to apply it. It takes wisdom to know how to apply it. I'm being faithful to the king. So how, how much do you adopt culture? How much do you just take in? How much do you resist? Where is that tension? Well, it is tension. It is a tension. And you know what? When you get into living counterculturally, you're going to find lots of pain and pressures and anxiety forced on your life from the culture that you're in. And uh, that's going to be the norm. Let me tell you, there's one. I wanted to, Colson Fellows... The whole reason that right there exists is to help you as a believer understand the dynamics of living counterculturally in America specifically. It's a one-year program. The deadline has been pushed to July 1st. I'm looking at you, Steve and Susan. <laughs> nod your head like this if I get something wrong. Okay. It's been, deadline's been pushed to July 1st. It's a year program, and it is baptizing and immersing you in what are the cultural dynamics that are happening in America? How should we think about it biblically and according to the gospel? How, what's your role? How would God use you? Well, all, all those paradigms, all the tensions that take wisdom, that program develops that wisdom in you. And I can't uh, promote a program better than this one to help you with all the complexities of living in the culture we live in and trying to stay true to Christ at the same time. Huge blessing. And then I would say, if you don't do the program, at least do this for me. Next slide. Breakpoint is a podcast that if you, hopefully you know what a podcast is, I don't have time to explain it, go to your podcast on your phone, look at Breakpoint, follow it, and I'm telling you, just try one this week, just listen to one, and, and, and pick a subject you like, a title that you like, and go, that's interesting, I'll hit that, and just listen to one this week, will you do that for me? It, and you can listen to this, and there's hundreds and hundreds of talks that basically is an interview type news report kind of deal and it's helping you think about what's happening in our culture and think about it biblically according to the gospel it's just helping you with that so what i want to encourage you root into that podcast it is brilliant they are right on target such good information and i encourage you to to sink in there and and take advantage of that there's three things we, we can't do when we enter into the tension i have said this before and i'll probably keep saying it again because it's the context in which we live 
three temptations. When we get into the context of living counterculturally in America, there are three temptations that we can fall prey to that we should not yield to. And the first one is assimilation. Become like the culture. Just be like them. Adopt their values and just be a Babylonian, right? Well, that's not an option for us. Why? Because in many ways, being a Babylonian is absolutely opposed to being a God-fearer. And so i got to know what that is. And I can't just yield to everything this culture says to me. So I'm, I'm not, I can't assimilate. I can't just become a product of the culture around me. i got to become a product of God and his word. And that's the goal of discipleship in my life. The second thing I can't do is isolate. That's another temptation. You get into the tensions of living counterculturally. And one temptation is, I just become like them. It's a lot less painful and I don't have any pressures, right? You can't do that, so we can't yield to that. But you also say, I'm not going to be around them anymore. I'm going to isolate myself in a nice little bubble. I'm going to go to the church all the time and I'm not going to hang around non-Christians. I'm just going to be in myself and I'm going to isolate myself. Well, that's not an option either. Why? Because Jesus said salt and light. No, you've got to get out in the midst of the culture so that you can show that you are different and that you, other people can get to know you and they can see what a Christian looks like and they can actually see a representation of Christ. And that can't happen if you're isolating yourself away from them. Salt, what good is it, is if, it, what good is it if salt's not existent? It doesn't, add any, it doesn't have any purpose to it. He says just throw it out. Light, don't put a bushel over it. Make it out, make people seen. What's that mean? Get out in the midst of that culture. So you can't isolate either. And that's two temptations. You can assimilate or isolate. Don't do either of those. But the third one, I want to mention this one, is condemnation. Especially in America, you might have anger toward what's happening in your culture or what people are saying or what people are doing out there. And you can have uh, animosity and frustrations that grow in your heart. And you can just unleash shame and anger and you can attack our culture and you can pick it and protest everything and you can be uh, poking them in the eye the whole time right we don't see that with Mordecai or Esther either we see them almost saying no 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 I'm in Babylon Babylonians are going to be Babylonians I mean why would you be frustrated with that the way they see the world that's just consistent in Susa Persians are Persians that's what they do I don't, I'm not frustrated with them about that. I don't blame them for, for the choices that they make. They're, they're Persians. That's, that's their values. That's their systems. Now, I'm going to operate different in their midst, and I'm going to pray for them, and I hope I'm a blessing to them, and I'm going to represent God, and I'm going to do my thing, but I'm not going to be angry and poke them in the eye and shame them and belittle them and manipulate them and try to force them and, and, and even, like, dominate them into trying to be like my culture. But you can do that, can't you? Especially in America where you feel like you're losing Christian culture. That once was, and that our culture should know better on the things they're talking about. And you feel like, oh, well, they, no, you think they're Christian? They're not Christian. Paul said this, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 5.12. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Look what he said. I'm not judging outsiders. That, people outside the church, they're outside the church. I mean, they're going to act like they, they act. I'm talking about holding each other accountable on the inside of the church. Is what he says in 1 Corinthians 5.12. He says, we shouldn't judge those come across as judgmental or any of that sort of thing. They're operating according to their worldview and their value system. And that's, that's, that's what they're going to do. What would you expect any different? Um, so, so there's this issue of I'm, I'm, I'm not happy about it, but I'm not angry at them either. I hope God would bring mercy and do a great work and save many of them. I hope, I hope there's a compassion there. And so what we see from Mordecai and Esther, as well as Daniel even, they didn't seek to eliminate the tension of the counterculture existence through assimilation, isolation, or condemnation. Rather, they simply lived in the tension. 
Day by day by day, the very practical, ordinary, I'm living in the tension. I'm living in the midst of a generation. I'm living in their midst, and I'm being faithful to God, and I'm letting that tension, and in that tension, where that is, God is at work. Philippians 2, 14 to 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, look to this, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation. Isn't that beautiful? There's the tension. Without blemish. Faithful to the Lord in the midst of a crooked people. <laughs> you see this? But that's our role. That's what we do. That's who we are. So next, prepare to resist when you must. Mordecai found a place where he felt backed into a corner. How much can you accommodate a culture? Probably a lot. There's probably a lot of things you can accommodate. You can accommodate a culture and you can just do what Babylonians do in a lot of ways. I eat their food. I dress with their, I wear their clothing and speak their language. I can do a lot of that. I can accommodate. I can accommodate a lot of culture in Babylon. But there's a few things I can't do. I'm backed into a corner and I'm forced to bow to a person. And I can't. I know I can't. And I have to just take my stand. This is, this is one of those issues. And Mordecai takes his stand. Listen to this. There's going to be times when you are going to enter the moment and you can't accommodate. You have to be faithful to the Lord, you're going to have to choose, I'm going to be obedient to God or obedient to men, and I can't do both. You have to obey God. You just have to trust God and go, I'm going to obey God, and although I know it's going to bring pressure on me, Mordecai stood knowing it would take his own life. He actually learned later that now they're wanting to take all of the Jews' lives as too, all too. He knew I would put my own life on the stake by disobeying the king's command, and I'm not going to stand. I'll give up my life like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. I am going to follow in that path, but he didn't know he was caught in the life of all the Jews. But he took his stand, and you've got to determine where that is. What do you accommodate, and then where do you stop? Where do you take your stand? Because in that moment, listen to this very carefully. The whole book of Esther wouldn't exist if Mordecai would have bowed. Think about that. The whole book of Esther is not a story worth telling if Mordecai bowed. The tensions aren't raised, and you know what? God doesn't show what he can do to his people if Mordecai bows. Isn't that interesting? But yet Mordecai took that place. And he took his stand and he said, I'm just being back into a corner and therefore I'm going to stand and I'll give up my life for it. And I'll take it right here. I'm not poking people in the eye. I'm not being disrespectful or insensitive. I'm not trying to intimidate anybody else. I just know that I can't do anything else. I got to do this right here. And God took that moment and escalated all of the tensions and showed himself mighty. Could it be that God will use you most when you get to that place and you have to choose one and you say, I'm putting all my eggs in the basket with the Lord. What else can I do? It's my only choice. God help me. Do it. Prepare to resist when you must. And then trust that God is at work in your life. Here's the cool thing about Esther. God's never mentioned. They talk about fasting and prayer in a couple of weeks. But God's not mentioned. They don't say, and God did this, and God did that. And God, nope, nope, nope. That's not the liter, literary, literary device that's used here. The literary device is used to show all these ordinary things that are transpiring and for you to see the picture that God works in all the ordinary things that are transpiring. God was at work when the king was getting drunk and showcasing all of his wealth. 
with his friends. God was at work when Ahasuerus stood up to him. God was at work when all these situations transpire. All the practical things that were taking place. God's working in all of it. He's working for his grand purposes through his people as they live counterculturally in the world in which they live. And you know what else? As you live counterculturally and you distrust, you have to trust that God's using you. Because most of the time when God is at work in your life, you don't know it. They didn't know it. Mordecai had, when Mordecai took his stand, he said, they're going to kill me. And then they hear, and Mordecai hears that they're going to annihilate all of the Jews. He could have went, where is God? And yet, God is totally at work. But he's not going to let you know about everything. But you have to trust that in the tension of me living for Christ in the midst of this community... He is at work, and he is at work in my life, and I can't comprehend it. I probably won't understand it, and he probably won't tell me, and he doesn't have to. I just called to be faithful, and I let him do it, and I trust him. I trust him in it, and you know what? Another thing about this, never write a person off. It's the last point I'm going to throw in there. Esther probably showed Sean she wasn't a totally great Jew up front. She had sex with a man that she was not married to. She married a non-Jew. Very specific commands in the Old Testament for a Jew not to do. And you're like, well, what choice did she have? It was the king, right? She had a choice. She could have died. She could have given her life for her convictions. And she chose not to. She placated. She went along with the system. She didn't even tell him she was a Jew. She hid her identity. I mean, it could be said. And yet, here we go. God's using a person that may be compromising, and he's using them. And I'm thinking about this, and my daughter comes to me. She went to a Justin Bieber concert. She's a believer. Where is she? Oh, oh, in the student section. Thank you. Okay, God, I was like, wait, where is my daughter? Like, all right. So she says, I go to the concert, and... Um, she says, Dad, he preached the gospel like three times, like forever in his concert. Was that right? No, okay, yeah. And, and I'm like, Lily, have I not taught you the gospel? Um, because there's no way he's going to preach the gospel, right, the gospel. And um, thank God I actually did train her well to understand the gospel when she hears it. And she said, she played it on her phone, and she said, look, I recorded it. And she, got, she gave me a little snippet. Of a, uh, he gets on a piano and he just starts playing and talking. Well, in those moments, he just started unpacking the gospel. And I'm like, well, okay, God's real. He loves you. Is it kind of language? And so she showed it to me. And I wanted you to see uh, a little bit of the video of his concert. This is him live in his concert right here in Austin. And he's talking to the people of Austin. So listen up. We got to earn God's love. We're just good enough. We do the right thing enough times that maybe God will show up, but that's not how God works, that's not how God works. While we were still sinners, God died for us, he sent his one and only son, so that we might live in freedom. It doesn't get much better than that. 
Would y'all hear him? He actually quoted the scripture, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't get any better than that. And she said that was just a little snippet of him going on and on and on about it, just like that, in three different episodes during his concert. And I can tell you this, Justin Bieber assembles crowds like Billy Graham would have dreamed to assemble. What is God doing? What if he's using unlikely people to herald his gospel to America? He is. He is. But you know what? We can look around us in our day-to-day and go, I don't, I don't feel him. I don't see him. Live counterculturally for the Lord. Live faithfully to him. Trust he's going to use you. And you say, you know, I made mistakes. So did Esther. He'll restore you, redeem you, use you. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? He'll use your life in immense ways. And guess what? If he does use you in immense ways, it's probably that you're going to be taken to a place where you've got to take a real stand on something at some point. And you might face some pressure. And it might hurt. You want God to use you? Be faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we just... Thank you for your word today and these meditations, and Lord, strengthen in us that you are the sovereign king, and you use all of us who were once sinners to the degree that we couldn't save ourselves, and you renewed us in the gospel of your beloved son, and you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your son, and we are light, and we are salt, and you are working Fill that in our hearts and our souls today, that this week we might live faithfully for you in the midst, in the midst, in the midst. Lord, use us. Lord, have we assimilated too much? Lord, have we isolated too much? Lord, have we condemned too much? Speak to us, Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom to live in the world in which we live for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. We're going to sing a song. Stand with me. Let's do business with the Lord. Let the Lord just kind of guide your thoughts as we sing this song together and do business with him.